Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Hello and welcome to True Fiction, the podcast where we talk to talented creative people and find out where all their inspirations come from. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Across the planes of space and time is the phenomenally creative Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight, Norbert? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We have a really good, but also a very interesting guest tonight. Tonight, our guest is a professional hypnotist. Not only is he a stage hypnotist, he's also a YouTube creator of hypnosis with over 240,000 listeners. Please welcome John Moyer to the show. How's it going tonight, John? I'm feeling creative and happy to be here. So one of my favorite topics to discuss. So yeah, I'm, I, I'm good. And thank you for having me. Awesome. Really happy to have you. Looking back on some of the stuff that you've went through to get to where you're at now, I'm just really interested in in just finding out a little more about that journey because it really does sound like a lot of the stuff rolled into a lot of different things and, and came out John Moyer of 2022. I want to bring up that you went to film school. It's true. Yeah, I did. I, uh, you know, when you're talking about my, my creative journey, uh, I mean, it goes back to you know, even when I was a little kid, right? So I was always passionate about, you know, the arts, whether it was drawing something in art class or whether it was writing short stories and, you know, I ton of imagination as, a, you know, as I was a kid. And then when I was, I think it was about 12 or 13 years old, um, it's funny, I, my friends and I went and saw American Werewolf in London. Now I was 12 at the time, but back in those days, the movie theater by our house, you know, checking IDs or having to be 17. So, you know, here's this group of 12 year olds. And I think a couple of buddies of mine were like 11 and 10, but I saw American War of London and that really just, that really inspired me. So I, I went and took my father's super eight millimeter movie camera and I started making, you know, home movies. Of course, we did not have video technology, video camera technology back then. So I'm using a super eight millimeter camera, developing the film, and then literally cutting the film with a guillotine to, you know, tape it all together. And I just, I love that. And I was so, to me, was the ultimate expression of of my creativity. At an early age, I just said, you know what, I want to, when I graduate from high school, I want to go to college and get a degree in, in theater and film. And yeah, that's exactly what I did. I don't think anybody will ever understand or have the appreciation of a nonlinear editor as oh somebody that's actually used the, the guillotine to to put together yeah. a film. Well, well you know, the, and the funny thing was I graduated from film school in 94 and it was my very last semester there. We had a visiting professor. Was, he was from some Scandinavian country or something, but I remember, he, and for whatever reason, he had been in Utah working on something and then he wound up being a visiting professor too. But he showed us editing on a computer for the first time. And it wasn't even anything we were doing in class. It was like, oh, by the way, let me show you what we're doing over here. Because up to that point, even in film school in the early 90s, we were still cutting 16 millimeter film. And then to literally see it on a computer, we were like, I mean, we were like cavemen to fire. It was the most unbelievable thing we, you know, we'd ever seen. And, and it is something that we just take so much for granted now, but yeah, there's a, there's an appreciation that I have for knowing what it's like to literally cut and tape pieces of film together. So, so then you went to comedy. Is yeah. Well, yeah. What had happened um, while I was in college, there was a comedy club and I wound up going and doing an open mic night. 
because, you know, of course, and everything that I was into that I was passionate about relative to anything that I was doing, um, you know, with film and stuff, I, it was always comedy, right? So I always, especially when you're doing a short film, like we were, you know, doing and, you know, for projects and stuff, I wanted there to be a payoff, a setup and a punchline, something that was, was humorous. So I wound up doing this open mic night at the local comedy club and I, did well enough, like my first time going up that the club manager said, Hey, why don't you come back? You could do five minutes or three minutes or whatever over the weekend. And I just discovered, you know, that I, I could do stand-up comedy. I, I, you know, I had a passion for it and it all seemed to kind of be in the same area for me. Right. You know, it was being creative, you know, telling jokes or, you know, writing comedy scripts. And so when I graduated from film school, I wound up going on the road professionally doing stand-up comedy, and that's what I continued to pursue. And then, of course, along the way, I, uh, you know, I had some of my comedy scripts produced as, you know, independent films with some of the buddies that I went to film school with. And so, yeah, I was doing stand-up comedy, writing comedy scripts, and, um, you know, that was that was my life for, you know, a good twenty-plus years before I wound up discovering, you know, stage hypnosis. What was it about stage hypnosis that brought you in? I always had a an interest in the mind, kind of tapping into the mind, you know, minds, you know, we hear the term mind hacking, you know, now that wasn't really a phrase 20 or 30 years ago, but I understood, you know, the concept. And I really, I discovered that my, my, you know, my first love really was that connection, you know, with a live audience. So the majority of my effort was, was put into pursuing stand-up comedy, but stand-up, the nature of stand-up comedy and the business of stand-up comedy really radically changed kind of in the early to mid 2000s. And it, it was not what it had been when I, you know, when I started and it was interesting because when I started in the early 90s, I would hear the comics, you know, the headliners then who came up in the late 70s and 80s who were all talking about how, you know, that was the heyday of stand-up comedy and then kind of how it shifted for them and how the market kind of broke down a little bit, you know, for them. And you know, I kind of went through that, you know, that same thing in the, you know, in the 2000s. And, and I was, you know, I was out there doing, doing, you know, my gigs and everything, but it was, it, it got frustrating because there were so many um, you know, standalone comedy clubs that were kind of closing down. You know, there were comedy clubs that were open, you know, Tuesday through Sunday, or a lot of places that were even doing a comedy night that just weren't what they had, you know, used to be or what they had once been. And I had wound up performing at an event and it was this series of all day events. And I was, you know, one of the one of the performers, and I didn't know this, but immediately following my stand-up show, they had a stage hypnotist. And the weird thing was the venue for, for my show was maybe like half full, you know, it was, the audience was okay, but then the stage hypnotist comes on after me and it was like standing room only. And, you know, the show was really, you know, the show was just, there was a lot of energy, a lot of magic. And of course, you know, people were throwing money hand over fist at him after the show to buy videos of the show and then buy his, you know, hypnosis products. And, and of course it was a stage hypnosis, which was obviously it was all, you know, comedy, you know, based and, and framed around, you know, people laughing and having a good time. And I went, you know what, I could, I could do that. And of course, stand-up comics always kind of have this hatred towards stage hypnosis, especially when it comes to the club. Cause I can't tell you how many times you'd go into a club, you do your show over the weekend, you know, audiences were okay. But then somebody would go, man, the, the hypnotist was here last weekend. We sold out every show. In fact, we had to add another show, right? And the comics would get angry at that because 
we were all like, man, we're, we're creating something original here. You know, when you look at the stage hypnotist is, you know, is, is kind of gimmicky, but I finally went, yeah, if you can't, if you can't beat them, join them. And I just, I got the funny part down, you know, I just now have to figure out how to hypnotize people. A lot of that seems to be the, the crowd that comes to a hypno, hypnotist, don't they, they want to be amazed. It's not like they're, I mean, are, are, do you, do you find a lot of them are like, you're not going to be able to hypnotize me, but it seems like to me, when people go to that, they want to be amazed. They want to be wowed. Yeah. Because it's, it's one of these things that if it's a, if it's at a comedy club where there's, you know, you do other things other than, you know, comedy clubs, you know, you, I find myself, I've done, um, comic cons, I've done fairs and, and things like that. So it's one of those things where people, you know, they know what it is and, some people, maybe they know what to expect. Other people might have preconceived idea, but everybody thinks it's, you know, it's going to be interesting. So, and, and especially, and this is one of the things, because I do a lot of corporate events and, you know, the one, and sometimes you'll have somebody go, we're not going to tell everybody that we're having a hypnotist for the Christmas party. We're going to keep it a surprise. I'm like, no, you do not want to do that. Part of it is, is having people, you know, kind of mentally prepared when they go in the, the crowd relative to a hypnosis show is going to be, you know, maybe different than what you might expect from, you know, a typical stand-up comedy event. All right. So you decide that you're going to join, you're going to go from, from uh, comedy to hypnosis. How long is that process before, like from the last comedy show to the first hypnosis show and what is involved in that sort of training? Yeah, there was, I mean, there was a period of time you know, three or four years actually, where I was actually overlapping. So I was going and getting booked for stage hypnosis shows and I was getting booked for stand-up comedy shows. So I was kind of a, a double-edged sword, which my, you know, my agent loved because I could go and do these two different things. But from the point when I first decided to do it to the point where I said, okay, I feel like I, I know enough now and I'm comfortable enough to go out and, and do this was maybe it was probably about a year to maybe 18 months, you know, from me going through kind of the training and then spending time at home, figuring everything out, how I was going to do it. And then of course, getting up, getting up the, the, the nerve to actually go and do it. Cause that was the thing. I mean, I had performed stand-up comedy all in front of thousands of people. I've been on live television and I was never more terrified than that first time I attempted to do a stage hypnosis show. Um, so yeah, there was about three years when those two things overlapped. And then I think it was probably 2017 where you know, I was just enjoying hypnosis so much more and there was more opportunity there for me. I kind of retired from, from stand-up comedy. And the thing was, is that my stand-up comedy too was based in a lot of my personal dysfunction. Because when you go to film school, the one thing you learn about screenwriting, it's like all drama is conflict. So you're not going to have home alone if the kid's not left home alone and there's no bad guys trying to break into the house. So I kind of took that paradigm and applied it to my personal life in stand-up comedy, wherein I felt the more dysfunctional and the more drama and conflict there was in my personal life, then that was fodder for me being able to be funny on stage. And consequently, I was able to be funny on stage, but personally, my personal life devolved into a pretty dark place for me. And then that, that kind of turned around when I began to do hypnosis, because then I started to kind of apply that to myself doing self-hypnosis and self-meditation. And when, I, when my personal life actually kind of came together, I didn't feel like I had anything to, to rant about or vent about on stage. So, you know, I wound up 
you know, retiring from stand-up, and then it all went um, completely in the direction of stage hypnosis. To me, that is really interesting, and that kind of it gives me a feeling. I'm not saying all comedians are that way, but man, no, they are. They are. You, well, you kind of, yeah. Now, I mean, it's true. Some some of the some of the most unhappy, dysfunctional people, <clears throat> you know, I knew were you know were stand-up comics. I mean, they very funny on stage. You know, some of them, my very dear friends, that personal life was just one stream of chaos after the other. Reminds me of Bukowski. The way he had, uh, and they made a movie about the, his his book called Barfly, where he was a writer and, but he was also an alcoholic and he was a drunk and yeah. he was always he was really he didn't want to have anything to do with the 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 life that the money brought him because he was afraid he's going to lose his muse basically yeah yeah i that that makes total total sense because there's and you know i think part of me too throughout my life has always kind of romanticized that element of being really good at something professionally right but then you've you've got this uh yeah like you you know the excess you know you're drinking you're partying you look like everything in your personal life is just this disaster but yet at the same time you're able to turn out some this this really creative interesting artistic content and yeah so i i you know i totally i totally understand that and you know i get that and it is interesting for me that when when areas of my personal life came together and i found a sense of inner peace that how there seemed to be some of the the spark or the passion that i had for certain things creatively like stand-up comedy just i'm like wow i don't i don't feel that passion in that in that area anymore but of course, you know, that passion then wound up becoming accelerated, intensified in other areas. No, it's almost like you're when you were working as a stand-up comedian, it was it was pulling you down to make your stuff better. Now the hypnosis is basically building you up. Yeah, and that, you know, and that's that's part of the interesting thing too about comedy. And and I think it's a reflection too of kind of how society, and I don't know necessarily want to say use the word evolved, but devolved in a way, because if you look at some of the things that are more popular in terms of we are fed in very small increments relative to things like TikTok or, or whatever, it's, it's, these, it's these videos of, of somebody punking somebody else or, or doing something to somebody else. So it's like that, that revenge or, or the, the victim oppressor kind of, of dynamic is is really kind of what generates clicks. And it's crazy, you know, where you're seeing somebody be pranked or, or, or whatever the case may be, or like, you know, even if it's not necessarily a, a funny situation, but how many times do I, I, like my wife and I were watching, saw some video the other night where like this woman is screaming at these guys, guys are laughing and they, she thinks that they're following her, stalking her. And they're just trying to point out that, look, when you pulled away from the gas pump, the gas nozzle is stuck in your gas tank and you've been driving. And it's like, it's always at somebody else's expense. That seems to be the big, big comedic payoff for people. Well, that's the basis of comedy, isn't it? Is somebody else, it's somebody being either embarrassed or hurt at some point. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, and, and, and that was a big part of some of the things that I did, especially when, when I was on stage is I was kind of the, you know, this angry guy and I was able to do crowd work really, really well. In fact, that was one of the things that my, my wife said, she goes, I always hope 
and and that somebody will heckle you because I love to watch the way that you just completely annihilate somebody. And what was interesting for me, though, was kind of towards the end there when I realized that if I and there was a lot of older jokes that I had done that were at um, somebody else's expense. And I reworked a lot of those. So I was able to kind of turn it around to be at my expense. And that seemed for me to at least it. It, it seemed to be, it worked better relative to laughs, but you're right. It, it is always at somebody else's expense. And do we dial that into, are we trying to, and of course, a lot of that is what it's at the expense of some other political party or some other group of people that we don't agree with now, or if we make it about ourselves, that at least can be a way that's not spreading as much anger out there, society towards other people. It's important that we try to make ourselves feel good without making other people feel bad. I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of a, a, a thing that we need to do, but I, I don't know if that's because I've been told that or I feel it inside, but I know that meditation can basically show yourself to yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the link between med meditation and hypnosis or self-hypnosis? Yeah, I, 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 I just kind of want to add to a little bit about something that we were just talking about. The, the, the turning point for me came I was doing a show. I think I was in like Oregon or Washington. And there was a guy in the front row, um, you know, a couple hundred people in the, you know, in the room, there was a guy in the front row that, that looked like kind of looked like Paul Giamatti. Right. So I was kind of rip, you know, making fun of him during the show. And I, maybe every once in a while, I'd go back to him. Hey, Paul, how you doing? Or, you know, what and it was, and it was getting big laughs. And of course we're done with the show. And I'm like, Oh, that was a great show. And I, you know, I had merchandise that I was selling after, after the show. And this guy came up to me and he, he goes, dude, what are you doing? Of course, I'm kind of taking that arrogant defensive position. I'm like, yeah, what are you talking about? We're doing a show or hearing people laugh. And he goes, you know, I came here to have a good time with my friends and stuff. And he's like, well, you, you embarrassed me. You made me. And I just kind of, I kind of brushed it off. And his friend's like, come on, dude, let's, let's, you know, let's get out of here. But it stuck with me because it was like my whole drive and my whole goal relative to creativity and especially comedy was to go out and take my, what I was feeling inside creatively and then packaging it in a way that I could share with the audience members and make them feel good, make them laugh. And here's, it was kind of this moment that I went, well, I was able to make people laugh, but at the same time, I made somebody else feel really, really bad. And, you know, that was kind of a reckoning for me um, and kind of started to begin that shift relative to realizing what I put out there creatively should benefit people and everyone not at the that the expense of of the one. So it was kind of a little add on to what we were previously talking about. But ask me that, you know, what was the rephrase the, the question you had about the meditation? There is a link between meditation and, and well, hypnosis and meditation. I, I think a part of it is uh, meditation is kind of self-hypnosis. But I mean, there's probably a line there. I don't really know what that is. And could you talk a little bit about meditation and self-hypnosis? Yeah. And, you know, really... They're sister states of mind because you're, you're going from awakening state, beta brainwave state, which is what we spend most of our time in. And you're going down into an alpha and theta brainwave state. So you're slowing things down. You know, what is happening relative to the mind and the body are, are, are exactly, exactly the same. And kind of the, when you, if you look at meditation, what people traditionally think of it as, um, you're sitting quietly, you're focusing on something. And then they might you think about the concept of hypnosis is, somebody's speaking to you in a certain way and they're taking you in this direction and they're putting ideas or thoughts or whatever the case is, is in your mind. And essentially the exact same things are going on relative to hypnosis and, and meditation. And a lot of the, the terms that we hear now 
kind of are all interchangeable. You're uh, guided meditation. Well, that's really kind of, you know, it's a form of hypnosis. It's somebody kind of guiding you or you know, guided hypnosis. And the thing is, is I think people tend to feel a little bit more comfortable around the concept of meditation or the idea or the word meditation, let's say, as opposed to hypnosis, right? Because meditation seems to be more spiritual. It seems to kind of be this ancient philosophy where hypnosis is kind of seems to be more like the movie Get Out or Kilgrave from, well, he wasn't really a hypnotist on Jessica Jones, but Svengali, something like that. They Hypnosis tends to be viewed in a little bit more of a, a nefarious light. When it, it, it Really, it's kind of the same thing that's that's happening. When you look at hypnosis, I think of one thing and I don't know if it's the same thing. So this I I sort of watch how our world is structured now in terms of how narratives are shaped and mm -hmm. put to people. And I'm shocked in how easy people are taken in by some narrative whatever it is. Yeah. Without yeah an underlying understanding of what's happening underneath of it and even questioning it. I don't know if that works with hypnosis, but I, it's now like, you know, I'm, I've gotten myself kind of tuned in to different things and mm -hmm. I just see it all over the place. And I, I see people like, you know, just parroting things that, that are in, in whatever narrative yeah, without questioning. Yeah. And I'm just, I mean, are they hypnotized? Is it a form of hypnosis? Ew. It is, it is some sort of, you know, persuasion and hypnosis, mm -hmm. I don't know if they go together, but it, there's something there that's happening. And you're exactly I'm not right. quite sure what it is. You're, you're, and, and kind of the way that I explain it is, is if you think about it, when you experience hypnosis, your brain waves are slowing down and you're actually going into a very heightened focus state of awareness when you're in those alpha and theta brainwave states. So it's like you watch a movie and or you're watching TV and you're really connected to something, you're focused on that. So you're blocking everything else out around you. Or it's like with my kids, they're staring at their phone screen or they're playing a video game. They're completely oblivious that I'm trying to get their attention and, and have an interaction with them. That literally is a form of hypnosis because you are so fixated on one thing. Now, what is it? Americans check their phones like 3 billion times a day. And we've literally created kind of a hypnotic induction there. We've, we've trained our minds that as soon as we look down there, we're focused on this and we're oblivious to everything else. Now, when you are in that focused state of awareness, you're also in a very heightened state of suggestibility. It's why hypnosis works on that level. Um, whether it's somebody on stage or you're telling somebody you're, you're not going to eat chocolate cake anymore and you're going to go to the gym or whatever. So now here people are, they're in that heightened state of awareness, that focused state of suggestibility. Now, of course, what is social media doing? Social media is feeding you the algorithm of what they believe that you're going to respond to. So the more people are angry about something or upset about something, the more they want to pound the keyboard to voice their, their opposition to something or call somebody else stupid. So you are, you're creating a state of hypnosis, that focused state of awareness, that focused state of suggestibility, and you're rewiring somebody's subconscious mind now to be trained to engage in that, that negative behavior that aligns with whatever maybe some of their, their own personal beliefs about society or culture or whatever the case may be. So you're exactly right. And that literally is what's going on. That's what's happening. Well, it, it, I find it on some level disturbing, you it know, is. like how it, people it are, are not like, huh, 
now why, why am I supposed to be either upset or yeah. liking or whatever? And it's like, there's no, it's just all up at surface level. And there's no, like, you know, you could ask people, well, why do you think that? And they can't really even ask. Yeah. And then well, I find out I'm like, well, you know, the, the, and that's the interesting thing. When you look at the conscious and the subconscious mind, the, the things that, that, that are going on, you've got a couple of things that are happening. Well, there's more than a couple, but consciously your conscious mind is where you're able to make reason and judgment in a way. You're able to look at something and go, okay, this makes sense or this doesn't. Uh, but the subconscious mind doesn't make any reasoning, doesn't make any judgment. It just connects two concepts and links them up, whether there's whether it makes any sense consciously or not, subconsciously, the subconscious mind says, when we see this, when we experience this, we feel this way. And so these are the two combinations and, the, and, and that's how it works. And this is how we're going to respond and, and react. And consciously, if you put it in terms of computer bits, the conscious mind process is somewhere around seven to 10 bits of information per second. The subconscious mind is processing something in the neighborhood of like 20 million bits of information per second. So you've got way more that's happening on the subconscious level there than somebody is able to even kind of comprehend. So to your point, they respond that way because they've been programmed on a subconscious level to respond that way. And it just immediately happens and they don't necessarily stop and think about it. And that's, that's what's going on. I'm going to ask you a second part to what you, you said something very interesting. I assume that's why like Pat and I are in, in a creative arena and we both talked about like doing things like for him mowing his grass or for me, walking the dogs after I've like beat my head on, you know, I'm doing working on a piece, an illustration or something, and it's just not happening the way I'd like it. And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, going to sleep and then walking the dogs in the morning and something will hit me. Bam. Yeah. yeah. Bam. And I assume that's because you're processing way more in your subconscious than you are on your conscious level. Yeah. Well, there are a few things that kind of happen there. You've kind of you've aligned your subconscious mind with this experience. If I go out to walk the dog, I feel calm and I feel relaxed. And you know, this is someplace where I can get ideas. Then all of a sudden your subconscious mind is able to generate those things for you. So you've created an environment, environment and stimuli that are conducive to you coming up with creative ideas. Now, one of the other things that happens too, is when you're kind of in that, that alpha and theta brainwave state, one of the things that can happen is you can actually trigger a gamma brainwave, a gamma spike, gamma brainwave spike. And what the gamma spike is, that's when literally all the areas of your mind sync up together and they're all online together. And it's, it's the proverbial aha moment. So what happens is now you've got all these different areas of your mind that are now online and connected and then are able to feed each other area information that all kind of come together. And that's when you're like, hey, I'm out walking the dog and all of a sudden, boom, an idea comes to me because you're in that environment that you've created that's conducive for yourself and it is, is able to have everything fire together to come up with the, um, come up with the idea. And, it, and it's the same way for me. I've never been one to say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to bang this out at this moment or write this at this moment or sit down and just focus. I'm going to come up with an idea at this moment. My conditioning, my stimuli is to know that if I let something just, I let it go and I just kind of go about my day, I know that at some point 
that inspiration is going to come to me and then I'll be able to sit down and focus and, and, and do that writing. And it's something that we all have a different kind of um, programming for our operating system on how we're going to generate creative ideas. Speaking of the creative ideas, you do a show. You've, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour. I don't know. You do a show and you've developed this show. So what you know about hypnosis is, you know, you have these, I don't know what you would call uh, what you do. Um, uh, you mean with like the volunteers and stuff? Well, well yeah, volunteers, but you have uh, things that you do. Where do you come up with, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you, there's a lot of people out there doing hypnosis. I've yeah. seen several hypno, hypnotists. Yeah. How do you come up with your, your, I, I want to say act, but uh, is that, was skits, that proper? We would call skits, them skits. Okay. The, the, the interesting thing about um, stage hypnosis, and, and this is one of the analogies that I've used in the past. I go, it's like a stage hypnosis show is like cheeseburgers, right? There's McDonald's and there's Wendy's and there's bacon cheeseburgers and there's double cheeseburgers and there's, um, you know, in and out and there's frame, flame. There's all these different versions of cheeseburgers and they're all cheeseburgers. Everybody's just kind of got their own spin on it. And that's really what relative to a stage hypnosis show, you, you're pretty much going to see kind of the same bones, the same structure, but it's how an individual puts their own own unique spin on it it's the this the the skits have been the same for the last however you know 100 years or whatever it's just things have been taken and then the, they're kind of put through the prism of the individual and that's that's really what sets one stage hypnotist apart from another is the way that they are able to creatively present themselves because in, in a sense everybody's doing the same thing but the the difference is that standout personality one over the other and it, but it, you know, it is even, I, I don't know that I've ever known anybody that that's ever come up with something brand new relative to hypnosis, right? It's just kind of figuring out your kind of your, your own little twist and just making something your own. Obviously having a comedic background helps with your stage presentation mm -hmm. and gives you an advantage over somebody who didn't come from that kind of backdrop. And, and you can, you know, you understand that there's a, a certain amount of being able to make people relax, laugh, that's an added benefit. One thing I was just thinking about as we was talking and, and obviously having a knowing about hypnosis and knowing a little bit about how the mind works, I was thinking of two different ways, things that maybe you would have some insight or suggestions outside of what we've just talked about. If you're a creative person and you want to achieve something, one of the things that we have found talking to however many hundred people or whatever in a creative space, you've got to work hard and you've got to develop your, but you also have to have time in order to develop your creative craft. And I was thinking about from the persuasion angle, hypnosis angle, if there's some practical things that you could say, suggest to people that are wanting to achieve, and frankly, they're holding themselves back mm -hmm. in some way. One of the, you know, one of the things that kind of the, the common themes in the content that I create for YouTube is um, one of the first things I say to people is stop using the word want, right? Because when we say, I want this, I want to do that. I want to be this, you know, the subconscious mind hears that as, well, we, we are not something or we don't have something and we want something. So the subconscious mind though, perpetually keeps an individual in a state of want. So, but when we say, I prefer something, I prefer to be this. I prefer to do that. I prefer to have this. The subconscious mind picks that up as this is who we are. We're a person who prefers this and a person who prefers this has this list of how we behave, how we think, how we act. And then therefore we're going to align ourselves with those particular types of behaviors and actions so we can be the person 
that prefers that versus the person who wants that. The one thing, and especially comes with creativity, the driving force um, for me my entire life has always been passion. You, you have to prefer something so much that not experiencing that is, it's just not on the table. It's not on an option. And I was 18 years old and, and kind of backing that up a little bit. One of my driving forces was when I was picked up my father's super eight millimeter camera for the first time. And when I finally said to my dad, you know what? I think I want to go and make a living in the entertainment industry. What do you think about that? My father was a very talented musician, but never believed he could ever be a full-time musician. So he was wound up working for his grandfather's company as a welder. My father just believed a real man works 40 hours a week doing what he doesn't like to support his family. Can't have fun doing it. So I say to my dad, what do you think about me going into the entertainment industry, making movies? And my dad says, I think that's another one of your stupid, childish ideas. So that linked up something that created a lot of pain for me in my subconscious mind. Number one, because I saw how miserable my father was and I didn't want to be as didn't want to be like my father, not doing what I, I loved. So at a very early age, I, I said, you know what, when I grow up and when I have a career and live my life, I'm going to do something that I love. And then the other thing was, is my father telling me that I couldn't do something was that negative carrot and stick for me saying, I'm going to go out and prove you wrong now. So that was a, a huge driving force for me that I preferred something so much that nothing else mattered. And, and even later on, after I graduated from film school, and I was doing comedy. I was at a certain level, but not, I, I was kind of eking by my father's like, you know, son, you should just, you should just pick a time, pick an age, a date where you go, well, I tried. And I'm just going to go on and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to do something else. And I said to my dad, you know when that's going to be? That's going to be when they're turning that crank and lowering my casket into the grave. And it was, it was interesting because there was a period of time there where I, it was never discussed, but I knew that my father had some resentment towards me because I was going out and doing what I love to do. That later on at the end of his life, we were able to resolve all that. But even in film school, when they would say, hey, listen, you better be a good carpenter so you can be a carpenter when you're not working or whatever. You got to have something else here that you should be doing because you may not make it in the film industry. You may not succeed. And I just threw all of that out the window. My philosophy was, especially when it comes to writing, you put your character in a, in a burning building and there's only one door to get out. You've got to figure out how they're able to get out that door. And that was kind of the way that I lived you know, my life. You're in a burning building and there's only one way to get out. And that was to be able to go out and make my living and succeed, support my family, do what I love to do and not have to be beholden to the proverbial man, the boss in some cubicle someplace. So above all else, it's got to be passion first and preferring that so much that nothing else is acceptable. That's awesome, by the way. And I want to say that one thing that we've heard time and time again on this show is that that sentiment right there that you don't have, you don't have that fallback career. You know, I, I, we talked to, um, Ted Lange from yeah, the Love Boat. Yeah, yeah. He's an awesome guy. He's an amazing, amazing guy. And his dad wanted him to get a teacher's, um, be, you know, have an education for a teacher. And Ted was like, no, because if I do that, then I'm not going to, yeah. then I'll have that. I need to, I need to know that there is no safety net. Yeah. And this is, this is what I'm going to do. So I love that and, you, uh, you shared that. Well, in fact, when I, it was funny because when I was 18 and got accepted to film school, my mom had said to me, she goes, well, you should probably minor in something. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, have minor in something, something you could fall back on. And I, and it was funny that I was even thinking this way at 18, 
I, and I might even been, you know, 17 at the time, but I, I said to my mom, I go, if I do that now, I'm saying that there's a chance that I might not, you know, make it doing what I love to do. And I go, nope, I'm not going to minor in anything else. And even when I, when I graduated, I was doing stand-up comedy, but of course I wasn't able to go out and make a full-time living at it. I, I was having to take jobs here and there, but I always made sure that I, I never took a job that I wasn't going to get comfortable in or make a money in. Cause I saw that happen with other, there were comics that go out there. Then, you know, then they, they get married and they've got kids or they've got this payment or, or whatever. And oh, I can't go on the road. I can't do comedy. And one of the most inspiring things for me that I heard, I remember this was again, in the, it was in the early mid nineties, I guess. Chris Rock was on Oprah Winfrey and Oprah was interviewing Chris and, and Chris had been, been on Saturday Night Live. He'd been kind of, I think there was some, co-starring some stuff in some movies, but Oprah said it, she goes, it just seems like all of a sudden right now, you've just blown up, Chris. Like you've been around for a while, but now you're just like, you've propelled to this A-list celebrity status and you've got all this going for it. She goes, what happened? And Chris said, I bought a house I couldn't afford. And, and that really, and, and man, that really, that, that struck me. Um, not in the sense of don't buy something you can't afford, but you've got to figure out a way to be able to pay those bills doing what you love to do and, you know, doing it that way. So if there was ever a point in my life where I was like, oh man, I I'm looking down the road and I, I, you know, I want money for this or need money for that. Yeah. At the time I was using the word want and, and need, but instead of going, man, I guess I, I, I have to go get a real job now. I went, okay, how can I accomplish making these ends meet, paying these bills by being creative? And that's what I always did. I got one last question for yeah. you, and that is, obviously, you've been doing hypnosis for a while. How do you measure in your own mind how you're progressing? Because everybody that does anything wants to progress in, in their field. And mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. It, I haven't thought about you know, hypnosis like that, and I, but I'm interested to, in knowing how, like, what kind of yardsticks do you put on yourself as you're going in this field? For me, at least, I mean, and the, and the yardstick that I use relative to anything is everything in life is an emotional state, right? We define things and we make connections that we say to ourselves, if I do this, if I have this, if I accomplish this, I will feel this way. And it's actually just the opposite. If you're focusing on that emotional state first, and, and then it's actually fascinating how you can see how your reality begins to align up with that. So for me, the, you know, the, the measuring aspect of it was when all of a sudden I realized I was happier, I wasn't stressed. And when I felt happier and I wasn't stressed and I was enjoying what I was doing, then all of a sudden I was getting higher paying gigs instead of driving 12 hours to do some cowboy hell bar, you know, in Montana, I was getting paid first, flown first class to do a corporate event that was paying me a lot of money. But I came from that state of feeling first that I don't need things to be different. I just, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm happier. I'm less stressed. I'm more calm. I'm more productive creatively. And I'm a that feels good to me because I'm doing what I love to do. And then as I experienced those emotional states first, then everything took off and it kept going. And it went, it went from having to do the hell bar, cowboy hell bar somewhere in Montana to doing stage hypnosis, high-end corporate events, then to performing for Royal Caribbean. I'm literally traveling around the world doing my, my stage hypnosis show. 
enjoying that, loving that. And then something completely unexpected happened from that was uh, the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel um, I created exploded and took off. And I'm like, man, I love life. And as I'm loving life, all these things were consistently lining up with that. So that was kind of, was kind of my metric. That was kind of how I went about doing things, focusing first on how I felt. And then after that, you then see the physical world progress in those areas that you prefer to experience. Speaking of, speaking of your, your YouTube channel, I noticed that you do a lot of, you know, you're doing a lot of performance and a lot of this is entertainment hypnosis, but it looks like on your YouTube, you've got a lot of really good information, a lot of really good tools for people for a lot of different issues. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because I I had it, I started my YouTube channel, what was it, 2005 or six, whenever YouTube became a thing, right? And of course, nobody understood at the time what YouTube would eventually would be. But, you know, I was using it as a platform to put goofy videos, funny videos, clips of my comedy show. And then it went from clips of my comedy show to clips of my stage hypnosis show. And then by sheer happenstance, I wound up putting some hypnosis programs on YouTube because what was going on in the, in the stage hypnosis industry, five, six, seven, eight years ago, whatever it was, they would always sell CDs after the show, stop smoking and weight loss and et cetera and so forth. But then of course, CDs became obsolete. So people stopped having CD players. So now I'm watching all these hypnotists kind of have these debates on social media about, well, what do we do now? Well, let's, let's create, and we'll, we'll have thumb drives. We'll put all, everything on an MP3 flyer. We'll say those, these thumb drives and we'll make it all digital. And now well, where do we find bulk thumb drives. And, and it just seemed like way too, too much kind of a, a, a complicated hassle. And I thought, well, I won't do thumb drives, but I'll create digital content. I'll put on my website and I'll tell people, go to my website if you want to get. Now, there is an element of that you're striking while the iron's hot. People are all excited about the show. So they want to line up afterwards and buy the product. But of course, the, the medium for that platform was kind of becoming absolute. And then I thought, well, if I put some of my programs on my YouTube channel, maybe maybe people will find it on YouTube, they'll be interested, they'll go to my website, they'll buy the MP3 files. Kind of a very convoluted kind of pathway to take. But what I didn't realize was that people actually used YouTube as their go-to platform for this type of content. So I had some, um, some programs on my YouTube channel that just took off and made it, everything accelerate. It kind of went viral, getting subscribers. And the thing about YouTube, it's they, they want to dial everything very down. They want to know exactly what your content is exactly what your channel is so we could push it out to the right kinds of people. So there was a point where my channel had some of my stage hypnosis clips, and then there was like programs, but people were more interested in the hypnosis programs. So I got rid of everything else on my channel, made my channel specifically about a hypnosis meditation program that you're going to listen to. You know, it's not me on camera giving tips or advice. It's people have got their eyes closed. So it's it's either a dark screen or there's just kind of a repeating graphic. And yet it's all that people can go there to experience hypnosis meditation. And interestingly, what happened is, is one of my earlier programs for sleep took off. So the people that were interested in my channel were people that were interested in going there to experience hypnosis to stay asleep or fall asleep and stay asleep. Of course, I had other interesting topics to me that I felt passionate about. So rather than just create hypnosis to fall asleep, it was fall asleep and download positive energy from the universe or shield yourself from negative energy, those, to- those types of things. And that's kind of how the whole the YouTube thing happened. Does this work on the idea of an affirmation? Yeah, it's to say the concept of affirmations is that if you're just drilling something over and over again, metaphorically, not literally into somebody's head, (laughs) that the subconscious mind will pick that up. See, what happens with hypnosis is that you're accessing the subconscious mind easier 
more effectively and you're able to get that information in there and kind of make it stick. So the thing that happens between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, there's this, it's kind of a firewall, if you will. It's called the critical faculty. It's kind of our own built-in system. I, I liken it unto the, you know, the bouncer outside of the nightclub with a red velvet rope who determines which attractive people gets in and, and which attractive, you know, the unattractive people don't, whatever the case may be. So what you're doing with hypnosis is you're distracting the bouncer with a red velvet rope in front of the subconscious mind. So while the bouncer isn't looking, you're sneaking these suggestions, these ideas, these concepts into the, into the subconscious mind. So that's, it's, it's a little bit more effective than just walking around consciously saying something over and over again, though that is a proven modality to work. You're just kind of being a little bit more quicker and more effective and allowing something to stick and last longer. What I'm understanding is that basically what we're talking about is the science. Now, mm -hmm. how you're getting that science to work is the creativity part. Yeah. So that's very cool. I really like that. John, how can our listeners check out your stuff? Um, obviously, my biggest platform is, is YouTube. So if you just look up John Moyer, J-O-H-N-M-O-Y-E-R on YouTube. You can find me there. My website's johnmoyer.com, which is a, can be a portal to all of my, my different social media platforms or places where you can experience my content, whether it's Spotify or you know Apple Music, iTunes. YouTube has got all the long form content. It's got a lot of my stuff is eight hours because again, people are want to listen to it to fall asleep and day sleep. So that's it's kind of the, the primary place where everything that I've created relative to hypnosis and meditation is at. Yeah, I think that is, I've been looking through these and some amazing titles does look like a lot of people are having issues with falling asleep. I would really like to lucid dream. Do you need to do any do lucid, lucid dreaming? I, I do have a program on there, um, awesome. you know, for, you know, for lucid dreaming. So that's one of those things where you can experience, you know, kind of experience that and you can tune up and prepare your subconscious mind to be able to have that trigger that experience for yourself. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. John, it's been great talking to you. I, uh, I think we could talk another hour. Too. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. It's been really good. Really good. Thanks. Hey, you have a good night and we will definitely, hopefully maybe down the road, we'll talk again. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd love to come back. You guys, this, this has been a lot of fun for me. So I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. Hey, hey. You're too late.